so much of therapy is not about finding out what's wrong with us, but actually figuring out what's right with the parts of ourselves that for a long time we've said are wrong. Meet Brian Ashley. I'm Brian Ashley, and I'm a psychologist with a master's in clinical psychology from St. Michael's graduate clinical psychology program. I came to Vermont to go to college in the year 2000 at Middlebury, and I never left. Now, in the spirit of fair disclosure, Brian and I are neighbors. We met in the field. It's at the bottom of our neighborhood because we were both flying our drones down there. And you know that I like nonlinear people with nonlinear interests and nonlinear careers. Brian definitely falls into that category. So, Brian, before we get into the meat of this conversation, the real subject matter, I got to ask you, where did your interest in flying drones come from? I went to graduate school with a guy named Mike, who's also in private practice and moved into the office building I was in in Burlington. And he came over one day and handed me a set of goggles, virtual reality goggles to put on. And he put his on and he took this little first person view drone and put it in the back of his pickup truck and zoomed it up in the air and flew it all over the neighborhood. And I was just absolutely mesmerized because it really was just the totally immersive experience of as though you're flying. So he loaned me like a little kid's version of one of these that he had for his own son. And I practiced sort of flying it around the house and trying it out. And then just slowly got into sort of the progressive stages of trying to put these things together because they really, at least when I started doing it, and I'll have to be honest, I haven't done it since having our third child. So I'm out of practice and out of tune and haven't been been out doing it because it's something that really requires pretty undivided attention. And it's not great for towing along three kids to do, considering that you can't keep an eye on them because you are literally wearing goggles that block out everything that the drone doesn't see. Well, the drones are fun. I mean, having one myself, I absolutely confirm that. But let's shift gears and talk a little bit about your primary career. You're a clinical psychologist. Most people, I think, are not really sure what the difference is between a psychologist and a psychiatrist. So let's start with that. What's the difference? One of the main distinctions I could point to is that psychiatry really attempts to be a linear field. It attempts to develop certainty and concreteness and to fit human behavior and experience into a medical model that is predictive, that is certain, that is concrete. And in doing so, it runs up against the problem that as much as we'd like to believe through image scanning, through various metrics or evaluative techniques that we know what's going on inside of our heads. And so much of those guesses or those hypotheses just don't bear out. And I think that kind of fundamental difference we could think about is that a lot of psychiatry is aimed at forming categorizations of observable, discrete behaviors that happen in clustered connection to each other, and then finding ways to manipulate change, intervene in those clusters of behaviors and patterns chemically, uh, pharmaceutically. Okay. And what about psychology? How's it different? Psychology at least the way I practice and think about it, comes at it a bit from almost the opposite end of it, saying that to categorize something 
to say, oh, well, you know, depression is this because the average person who is depressed has these behaviors, has these symptoms. And so we're just going to group them together because they're commonly experienced together. That would be the psychiatric diagnosis. The psychological diagnosis would be to say, what function does this experience that the person is having serve? What is the reason? And that if we have a good reason, or if we have an explanation, then knowledge about that and insight into it should shift what the experience itself is. And so there is an ideological attempt to really understand function and reason, as opposed to just say, we see it and therefore it is. So, you know, they'd say psychiatry is sort of nosological in that it's about creating categories and refining categories. And that ultimately the reason that something happens becomes less important than the certainty that it is happening. And, you know, to this day, we don't know whether neurochemical changes occur as a result of depression or depression occurs as a result of neurochemical changes. And the chicken and the egg is never going to be answered for something like that. And so even within then the field of psychology, I end up on the much further extreme of wanting to really see that a kind of normative definition of mental health, one in which we say that you know, the average experience is health and the abnormal non-average experience is illness is pretty meaningless. And that if we come from a different angle and we actually reconceptualize what a symptom is and what purpose human suffering serves, it actually ends up completely turning that paradigm on its head. Can you give me a tangible or maybe a better said practical example? A simple one is is depression. Most people would say, oh, depression is an illness. Depression is a, a disease and you want to end the depression. While I would never minimize the impact or the suffering that it causes, I also think that we have to look at it differently than something like a cancer or something like a bacteria that you can observe, that you can see, that you can prove that is clearly the source of pathology. And the metaphor that I love about something like depression is to say, if you sprain your ankle, your body will cause inflammation that prevents your ankle from moving in the way it moved when it got injured. That inflammation will bring fluid, which will bring compounds that heal the soft tissue that also pain receptors will tell you what hurts. And this will be tremendously valuable information for you to know how to take care of your ankle, along with a healing process that will begin to fix your ankle. I think depression is a good example of something that very much resembles inflammation because depression is something that occurs when we have some kind of psychological or psychic injury, some emotional injury. And there is a thing that happened that is so painful that our mind doesn't want it to happen again. And so rather than feel anything, we shut down, you know, in a way that inflammation immobilizes the the joint, depression immobilizes the person. Depression isn't actually sobbing and, you know, weeping and emoting productively. 
it's usually an empty kind of sadness. It's a hollowed out sort of experience of, of subtraction. And so in a big way, depression is like the immobilizing force, like the inflammation in the ankle. It brings our awareness and attention to there being a problem. It brings attention from others who notice the withdrawal. And then also maybe most profoundly, just like inflammation, while it's helpful in the short term, in the long term, it becomes the problem, the solution that becomes the problem. So just as with an injury to our body, where we have to learn how to use that part of our body in a way that we don't get injured again, with depression, there is this really profound lesson that it offers us to learn about some kind of way of being in relationships or being in our life that allowed a psychic injury to occur and can give us the, the path towards changing some part of our life that keeps that injury from recurring. It almost sounds like the practice of psychology is more holistic, more uh, ecosystemic. That is to say, it isn't simply looking inside and saying, what kind of neurochemical dysfunction do we have here? It's also saying, what are the external environmental factors that are perhaps, because you said it, we don't really know, perhaps leading to the dysfunction that we're attempting to treat? Is that, would that be fair? Absolutely. And, I, you know, and also to make the divisions within psychology, there are certainly cognitive behaviorists who believe that emotional suffering comes from distorted cognition. Then there's current research that says, well, actually, no, maybe it's the emotional suffering that causes the distorted cognition, not the other way around. Then there's humanistic, sociological psychology. There's, you know, my focus and thinking and training and, and work is more in this idea or this field called psychodynamics, which is psychoanalytic theory derived through psychoanalysis, but not necessarily applied through what you would call traditional psychoanalysis, you know, laying on the couch multiple times a week, predominantly free associating, but rather a dialogue between two people sitting up facing each other, doing psychodynamic therapy, which incorporates those, those discoveries about the mind that might have happened on the couch in more intensive circumstances. But then once they are discovered, can be used more conversationally or more in a dialogue and with less frequency and with less intensity. It's kind of the, the metaphor here is that it's important that some people get psychoanalysis because psychoanalytic writers can use that process and that intensity of a relationship the way that a microbiologist can use a microscope. And once they have seen the bacterium and they know what surfaces it grows on, you don't need to bring a microscope to know that you should wash your hands after touching the doorknob. You just know that it's there and you recognize the areas that you're likely to encounter it. And so because it's been discovered somewhere, you can generalize that knowledge. Well, the same thing goes with a lot of things that have been you know, discovered in intensive treatments. They write about it, they process it and, and think about it, and then they offer it up in a way that can be applied to less intensive circumstances where you can identify it in a smaller, less magnified way, but still apply the same theory to it. And that I think is kind of what psychodynamic work is, is using those theories, but in a less intensive way. So Brian, let's talk about the power 
or the value of counseling. I can say firsthand that it's incredibly powerful and incredibly impactful, but what do you say to the people who don't believe in it? That's a good question. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting to try to answer that question because I have a selection bias in that the people I end up talking to are the ones who've already worked through that problem. I guess what comes to mind for me is something that I really have internalized from training a while back in family therapy, back when Hurricane Irene wiped out the state hospital in Vermont. A lot of funding came in for alternate means of mental health treatment. And a lot of people were questioning a lot of things about the old way of doing things, having a big hospital, I think a 50 bed psychiatric hospital in the state that even in its size was microscopic compared to the old Waterbury complex and the old way of having, you know, large asylums in every state. And one of the ways that we used the funding at the counseling service of Addison County was to pursue training in a form of family therapy that had been developed in Finland called open dialogue. So we studied these methods and these approaches to family therapy and to intervening in crisis. And I think the thing that came that I came away from that with most profoundly is this idea that mental illness is not something that happens in one person. It's a thing that happens between people and that the notion of the sick person and the healthy people is such an artificial dichotomy that the quote unquote healthy people use to feel healthy and that the quote unquote sick person uses very unconsciously to have a place and a role in a family that secures some kind of attachment. And that every time I am doing supervision or I'm working myself or hearing about a situation in which there is this system and there's the one sick person or there's the group of sick people and there's the group of healthy people, there's a lot of sort of reorganizing to be done about undoing those artificial divisions. So what does it look like? I mean, how does it manifest? we often end up suffering because other people have asked us to be in roles for them that don't honor who we are as a whole person. So we've had to bury away feelings that they couldn't tolerate, or we've had to hide true parts of ourselves in order to be a part of a family, in order to be a part of a group. And the amount of suffering that we endure when we become isolated from those parts of ourselves, when we lose contact with core negative emotions that a parent couldn't tolerate or that we felt wouldn't be loved or couldn't be loved, over the course of time, we sort of impoverish ourselves. We feel ourselves, who we are as a person, shrinking down into this kind of redacted, edited version of who we are. And those are where symptoms come from. Symptoms, as I would conceptualize it, anxiety, depression, uh, obsessions and compulsions, uh, addictions, are often these really important communications from parts of ourselves that we long ago foreclosed on or isolated from who we allowed ourselves to be. And that so much of therapy is not about finding out what's wrong with us, but actually figuring out what's right with 
the parts of ourselves that for a long time we've said are wrong or that we've convinced ourselves and been convinced of that we couldn't be loved if we felt angry. We couldn't be accepted if we had needs. We could only be accepted if we could meet other people's needs. There is a lot of grief in reconciling with how much life we've lived not being our whole self or not being our true self, not letting those emotions in. But I guess with a lot of therapy and with a lot of people who have gone into deep work, what they often are able to reflect on is just how much fear they had that they'd come into therapy and find out that actually they're even sicker than they ever thought. Or that people who say, you know, as you said, like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. It's that it's these people in my life. What holds them back is the fear that they're going to realize that actually they're the problem too, or that it's worse than they ever imagined. And what I, I guess I hope that people will get from therapy is really the recognition that the things that they always thought might be hiding in the shadows that are even worse than they ever thought are actually harmless. And that the worst thing for them has been the isolation of those things, the, you know, the disavowal of those feelings, that that's what, that's what's scary. That that's really intriguing. And it, it's bringing up all kinds of thoughts. One of them is that you're kind of reinforcing that idea of the ecosystem and that ecosystem that, you know, it's, there, there's, there's no single simple answer, right? I mean, there, this is a complicated beast. We all know that. But what it also makes me think of is um, actually a podcast I did not too long ago with a, an old friend of mine. And he's now a, he's a poet. He's a professional poet. We had this really interesting conversation about the difference between community and tribalism. And how community is very inclusive. You know, we welcome you, come in, you bring value. We want you to be part of the community as opposed to tribalism, which is more, more exclusivity. It's sort of, unless you know the secret handshake, you can't come in. We don't want you here. You're different. And it almost sounds like there's some of that sort of separation, if you will, in this, that, that to understand why you feel the way you do, it's, it's important to understand the bigger picture, that, that you're part of an ecosystem, part of a community, some elements of which may be broken, but that doesn't mean you are. <laughs> it's how do you, de- how do you deal with that? How do you manage within it? How do you help to make change that will lead to better outcomes? That kind of thing. Absolutely. Well, what it makes me think of is even that we're here talking about interpersonal communication and what a lot of therapy is concerned with is actually the intrapersonal communication and that there's just in open dialogue, for example, they talk about a polyphony and that the way that they structure conversations in these network meetings is designed to enhance polyphony. The idea that it's okay to have conflicting and multiple perspectives and voices within one's own mind and that we don't have to destroy that which is in conflict in order to have internal peace. And that from what you said about interviewing the pastor, that there's almost an internal shift from a tribal mentality within one's own mind in relation to one's own parts and voices that can move towards a community mentality where dissension and conflict is welcomed as being something that doesn't destroy the other. In the notion of that tribalism and community and in the idea of pathologizing symptoms versus seeing a certain wisdom in them, there's this idea that 
again, you know, I'm sort of meditating on the idea of what is nonlinear to re-envision mental health symptoms and suffering, mental pain as something that isn't an obstacle to be obliterated or to be medicated or to be logicked out of experiencing, but actually something to be embraced and moved into and through is a fundamentally different way of thinking about our suffering. Most people will say, I I can't let myself cry because I think if I start crying, I'll never stop. And the reality is that emotions actually have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Feeling an emotion is a productive process that changes us. If it's actually happening authentically and fully, it cannot last forever. Definitionally, it has an end. And at that end, we are a different person who relates to the thing that we're feeling about differently. However, doing self-destructive things to stop from having feelings can easily last forever. And that there's a way in which all symptoms, which are all ways of self-protecting, end up self-fulfilling the exact fear that we usually express about what will happen if we feel the thing we're afraid to feel. And there's that genius that in each symptom, if you simply interview the person and ask enough good questions about what's wrong in their life because of this symptom, usually that will help the two of you arrive at the answer of what they're actually afraid of and why it won't happen if they feel their feelings, but it will happen if they keep doing this thing to not feel their feelings. So there's still a little bit of logic to it in that way. There's a cognition element, but that's mostly for the buy-in to begin to break down that, that resistance to the feeling. Okay, so let's shift gears sort of to the present day. COVID descends on us in 2020, and you're in a business that, let's face it, to a very large extent, depends on face-to-face interpersonal communication. So how did COVID affect what you do as a psychologist? Well, that's a good question. I mean... I did a fair amount of teletherapy before COVID happened, in part because when I was the associate director of the Middlebury College Counseling Center, I was involved in getting an after-hours support service set up, which involved a lot of understanding of sort of various laws that pertain to teletherapy and licensing and liability issues and, and practice issues related to that. And so Then I left Middlebury College, moved my practice to Burlington, but continued working with a fair number of students who either didn't want to drive an hour or didn't have transportation. And so the natural solution was teletherapy. And it's funny because back in 2018, it felt so different than sitting with someone in an office. Then two years and pretty much almost exactly two weeks ago, when the news about COVID was circulating. And the irony being there was probably so much less COVID actually circulating (laughs) then than there is now. And the fear level was so high, but I just uh, was able to click a button for each appointment recurring on my schedule, let everyone know they'd be getting an email with a link instead of an email reminding them of an in-person appointment and that we were going to switch it up. And out of my, you know, 35 appointments a week, I think 34 people were on board and only one person really struggled with that. And I tried to just make it feel normal. 
you know, in the interest of making sure that the work was a priority and that we would continue it regardless. And I think, I, you know, I've learned so much about it in the meantime. Um, one thing I've really come to understand is that there's so much that I th- think I needed when I started my practice to kind of bolster my professional sense of self. You know, it felt important to have like this well-decorated office and be in a nice, have a nice waiting room and create this experience that I don't know, felt like a bit theatrical. And in going to a teletherapy model, it really started to strip down to some pretty elemental things, what therapy is and what is helpful about it and what's necessary about it. And if we think about the way in which on a really fundamental basis, it's about putting words to experiences that haven't had words put to them before. It's about taking a presentation and turning it into a representation. It's about the idea that some things are known, but not thought. There are things that just can't be thought, but they can be felt. So I think that going to a teletherapy only experience has really distilled some of the crucial aspects of communication that are required. And I think initially it felt strange. It felt very strange when I started to take on my first new clients who I'd never met in person. Since then, I have to be honest, it just doesn't seem weird anymore. Brian, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. As we move into our sort of final thoughts section, let me ask you this. How would you as a practitioner like people to think about psychology in general and about counseling more specifically? The thing that we think is an obstacle to being well is actually the only map that we have to getting well. You know, that human suffering, anxiety, as much as I don't want people to be mired in it and stuck in it forever, it's not something to be obliterated or destroyed. It's something to be leaned into because it's like the magnetic force that points the compass. If your smoke alarm is going off and the fire department comes and uses one of their axes to smash the smoke alarm on your ceiling, and then they tell you that they've solved your problem and they leave and your stove still has an oil fire on it, you're not going to be very happy. And that's honestly, I think, a lot of how we think about symptoms and suffering in our society is that you turn off the alarm system and the problem must go away. That ends up really making people believe that they must be so broken that they can't be helped. And I think that's a fear that keeps a lot of people from going to therapy is the belief that what they'll discover in therapy is they're actually so broken that there's no help for them and that they're better off living this edited, narrowed down life in which they avoid certain things, in which they avoid feelings, in which they don't tap into certain parts of themselves and take risks emotionally because their fear is that the downside is so, so great when in fact, much of their suffering may result from living within that confine, living within that fear that the worst is really out there waiting for them as opposed to some kind of a freedom from that constraint. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. 
In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.